Before we get to this week's Better Call Saul recap, let me take a moment and thank our sponsor for this episode of the podcast. Those are our friends over at True Car. You know, there's something about True Car a lot of people don't know. Using True Car can help you buy a used car too. What? Yes. In fact, there are over 700,000 pre owned vehicles available from True Car certified dealers nationwide. Whether you're looking to buy a new or used car, you can get upfront pricing, uh, no slipping Jimmy action here, and information that empowers discounts. Discounts off the list price for used cars and a better buying experience through the True Car Certified Dealer Network. You'll see what other people are paying for the car that you want, and you can know what a fair price is so you can feel confident. And with True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick and easy car buying experience. Using True Car, you can easily find the new or used car that you want. That's why over 3 million cars have been sold using True Car. So when you're ready to buy that, that new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Season 3, Episode 8, Slip is over, but we're just getting started here on the Better Call Saul post-show recap. And now, here are the two guys who were just out in the desert with the metal detector looking for any nuggets to talk about with you here today and Arrowheads. I'm Rob Sestrini. Here's Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how are you? I'm well, Rob. It's great to talk to you. Great to be back talking Better Call Saul after a brief hiatus. But I didn't find anything out there in the desert. Did you? Mm, no, no. I, I that uh, I thought I saw like a human hand sticking out, but I just like <laughs> I ran for it. I said, I don't need any of that. Maybe that was Alex Kidwell. Uh, maybe Yikes. that was Alex Kidwell. No. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe his his lifestyle finally caught up to him, this uh, baller lifestyle he lives. Yes. Uh, God forbid. God forbid. Okay. God forbid. Yeah. From my lips to no one's ears. Yes. Antonio, uh, so here we are after our little uh, hiatus last week. No better call, Saul. So we are back to talk about uh, the eighth episode. Only two more episodes left in the better call season to go. So a lot on the horizon. And then also, you and I are going to get it the chance to talk about the very exciting Leftovers season and series finale on the Leftovers uh, feedback show coming up soon as well. Really looking forward to that, uh, Rob. We didn't talk about, we haven't talked about that episode at all together, even before this Better Call Saul podcast. So I can't wait to hear your thoughts on the finale, the Leftovers season as a whole, and the Leftovers series as a whole. And we've gotten a lot of great feedback from the listeners of that podcast. So I'm really looking forward to that. Okay, but that will have to wait. Okay, uh, make sure you're subscribed to uh, all of our podcast feeds to not miss any of that. You can subscribe to the main feed, postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes, or for Better Call Saul only, postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes. And uh, do we want to push people to subscribe to the Leftovers podcast? <laughs> There's going to be a couple more Just episodes. Just sign up for post-show uh, recaps. Sign up for post-show yeah. recaps, yeah. That's You'll the be best all set. way to do You'll it. You'll be all set. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, Antonio, uh, so boy, this was a night featuring uh, a major regression for Jimmy McGill. One might even call it a slip, Rob. Uh, yeah. yeah, this is uh, featuring a major regression. I think we got centered on that major regression with the first scene, the flashback scene with he and his old buddy Marco. Marco. 
Polo. Yeah, uh, and so Poyo. it is set. It's setting up Marco Pollo. I love it. Yeah, that's great, Marco Chicken. It's setting up uh, Jimmy for more than one fall. I think this is. Uh, we're seeing. We're seeing Jimmy McGill hustle his way into seven hundred dollars by the end of this episode. Where we began the series with Jimmy McGill was him hustling for seven hundred dollars for his public defense work and not feeling like he was compensated enough and being very angry about it. He looks so peaceful and at ease and happy to have hustled for the 700 at the end. This is a Jimmy McGill who is very clearly slipping, as you're pointing out. Yeah, and going backwards, uh, maybe more slipping Jimmy at this point than Saul Goodman, but clearly uh, we see Jimmy McGill is on the ropes. Yeah, he's on the ropes, and this is what you do. I mean, it, it's, it is a scenario we talked about in the wake of chicanery, in the wake of the trial of Chuck McGill, it, what happens to Jimmy McGill? You treat him like a criminal. You call him a criminal for long enough, he's, he's going to act like one. You put him in the, in the... He's out there with drug dealers. He's out there doing his community service with actual criminals. So what do you expect for this guy to do once you treat him like a criminal so much and you call him a certain thing so much? It, it, it's really a matter of time before he just gives up. And it really did seem like Chuck was his moral center in many respects. And once Chuck fully burned him, Jimmy has nothing. He's, he's rudderless in, in many ways. And so this is where we end up. Up. We end up with a Jimmy McGill that's likable on some level. It's fun to watch him operate, but on another level, he is a, a pretty dark dude, and we're seeing a lot of darkness between he and Kim. Antonio, I feel like that coming down the stretch in season two, we felt like, oh, okay, things are looking bad for Jimmy, certainly at the point of the season two finale. It's like, oh, he could be in trouble, but I really feel like that we've seen a shift after this last episode to where he he really is sort of like uh, we see the cracks in the armor that he has this darkness uh, in him and it's getting harder and harder to see the redeemable qualities about him. Yes, and yet, I do feel like there's a flip side to that, which we see in this episode, where he's getting there in part because he's being left behind, or he's being screwed over himself, or other people are putting him in a position where he responds and reacts this way. Slippin' Jimmy only comes out at the uh, Albuquerque Music Store after his handshake deal with the Sklar Brothers has been pulled, and that's only then does he really pull a con on them. So he is going in a dangerous position, but I do feel like... We're meant to feel like this is a guy with some humanity who is pushed to these realms and who, if you beat him down and put him in a corner, this is the animal that comes out. And I do think that there is at least that part of it for me still that you're right. He's a darker guy, but his humanity is in part being trampled on. Not He's not just casting it aside. And I think that that's been the story of Jimmy McGill that we've seen throughout the series, not just this season or in these episodes, that Jimmy McGill has been beaten down. He's taken a lot of hits. He's taken a lot of criticism. His own brother was against him. He didn't know it for a whole season. Uh, and Jimmy McGill has responded to that by by just becoming more slipping Jimmy, becoming more of the guy he was trying to leave behind. And truth be told, this fits him a lot a lot better. Like this is a, it's a pair of shoes that he slips into very easily. So do you feel like that he's this Robin Hood type figure where once somebody wrongs him, then all bets are off. But until that point, that's why he is like a still a noble guy. 
Yeah, just we haven't seen him really, and and we're we're seeing it now as as we get into the later parts of this season. But we haven't see, seen him really run cons uh, and 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 take advantage of innocent people. Uh, the people that are his victims or the people that he's in opposition to, typically their hands aren't clean when they come to the table. And whether it's a version of the Sklar brothers pulling out of their handshake deal, which granted wasn't really a fair deal for them as they were observing, but was still a deal that they made, or whether it's this guy who's been an unconscionable ball breaker and a hard ass to him working on the community service line, essentially becoming the quote unquote victim of his scheme. He hasn't really been taking advantage of innocent people, even when he was dealing with Chuck and even the horrible things that he did to Chuck. The the, the scam on Chuck was because Chuck was being so terrible to Jimmy uh, and so terrible to Kim. So I think the next step is Jimmy really taking advantage of, of more innocent victims and not his hands are going to, as they get dirtier, he's going to get into some things which have a lot more uh, criminal intent or criminal element involved with them. And I think that's the difficult part for Jimmy. It's like, so far, I think he's still redeemable. He hasn't gone full Walter White season five, Breaking Bad yet, but he's going to get there, I have a feeling. I mean, we know when he gets to Breaking Bad, he's, he's a less humane, even darker person than he is in this series. So we're seeing that play out. And that's heartbreaking because we know he's a decent guy at the end of the day. So the key thing that we saw at the end of the episode was where he ends up getting this drug dealer out of his community service so that he can go back to whatever sort of illicit activity that he was doing. And, and right, that he that he didn't actually have a sick kid, right? I don't know. Uh, it, it played to me like he did. Uh, when I know. He, when he got, when go he ahead. seemed like he was like laughing on the way out. He didn't be like, you know, seemed like, oh, okay, thank you so much. I'm on my way to go to the hospital now. He was just sort of like, yeah, I'm on my way. Like, he seemed uh, to be uh, jovial for a uh, concerned parent. That's true. It could read either way, uh, because I think he could have also been jovial in the wake of just having witnessed an actual Jedi mind trick, right? Like having witnessed a pro at work. I think he said, this is the best $700 I've ever spent. He was like thrilled that he even witnessed it. He was cracking up laughing even then and really impressed. So it can read either way. But I, I like the read that he was off to do nefarious things, that he was off to be what rhymes with mug stealer or whatever. Like this is something that Jimmy was not concerned with what this guy the, the truth of the matter is, I don't think that it was that it was the guy had a sick kid that made Jimmy do what he did. Jimmy took the money. I think the the uh, the reason Jimmy did what he did is Jimmy didn't want to be there. Jimmy didn't like the guy. Jimmy thought the guy was a dick, and Jimmy thought the guy deserved to have his lunch fed to him ultimately the way that he did. So. I think that it was the action that was interesting to Jimmy, not necessarily the reaction or what would happen afterwards. And I think that's, as you're pointing out, if that's the read, that's the first step on a path where you do bad shit and you really don't care what happens as a result. And so we saw really for the first time that Jimmy is uh, taking money from someone in the criminal enterprise. Is that fair to say the first time that he's really making money due to some uh, activity that's from uh, the, I don't know, what do you call it? Uh, the unseemly uh, drug trade? Yeah. I don't want to offend any the- of our listeners in the drug trade. It doesn't need to <laughs> be unseemly. Listen, it's our way of life, Rob. Uh, yeah. Listen, you visit high level health in, in Denver, Colorado and talk to your friend Jim Rice about whether or not it's uh, it's a noble pursuit. But uh, but yeah, right. it is. Uh, I mean, I don't a, think that the guy who was in uh, the community service was running a marijuana dispensary. 
Yeah, maybe not. Oh, maybe he was, but just in a in a very loose way. <laughs> right. It's hard to say. Yeah, hard to say. He must but, have been uh, very successful at his job to have that kind of cash on him. That's a good point. $1,000 in his sock. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a tough trade, man. They don't let you put your money in a bank. But uh, but yeah, this is not this is not the first time Jimmy has benefited from a criminal act. Uh, and we're reminded of if his past when we see the flashback scene with Marco at the beginning of the episode. As far as his descent into the, the realm of drug dealers, though, and dealing with drug dealers, I mean, he may have had drug dealer clients as an official attorney, a criminal defense attorney. We didn't really see a ton of that. Uh, we've seen him to the police to save uh, Mr. Price, uh, the playa, with the squat cobbler incident. So we have seen Jimmy bend the truth in a legal way. But this is Jimmy operating, I think, fully outside the realm of the law. He essentially was practicing law without a license, making legal arguments, blackmailing the guy. So this is, a, this is certainly a new step for Jimmy that we haven't really seen. It's a hybrid of a con that he would run uh, and a legal work uh, that he's been doing. So... This is not quite Jimmy encouraging the twins at the beginning of season one to fake a car accident so that he can get the Kettleman's as clients. Uh, but this is Jimmy straight up just lying and manipulating and essentially blackmailing an officer, uh, a person who works for the county, uh, in order to get $700 from a drug dealer and to get unfair credit for his community service. So this is certainly a step in a direction we haven't seen Jimmy really take. Okay. And eventually we know in the Breaking Bad era that he is going to be routinely meeting with uh, these types of people. So it does feel as though this is the beginning of something for Jimmy. I agree. I completely agree. Or for Saul. Yes, or for Saul or for or for whatever name he chooses to go by that week. But yeah, it is uh, it is certainly it's certainly a path. And it's interesting, right, because we're we only as you as you pointed out, we have two episodes left this season. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about how the, the trip from Jimmy to Saul is uh, is maybe not that far of a fall. And we, it's funny because <laughs> it's not that far of a slip uh, when the episode after chicanery, uh, when he first mentioned Saul Goodman and that all plays out. Uh, that that turns into the episode after that, the, our most previous episode, where we really see him being kind of mean to Kim and just dark. And and Josh Wiggler pointed out to me, like, man, you call a guy Saul Goodman and all of a sudden he's a criminal. And I think that we're not quite to the point where he's Saul Goodman, attorney at law, willing to represent drug dealers, willing to do whatever, willing to send people to Belize. But we are certainly headed in that direction. And I think that last scene is a perfect microcosm of that. One of the things that I was wondering as I was watching the episode, after the drumstick fall, it seems as though Jimmy ends up having uh, some real back issues, and we see him laying down uh, when he's talking to Kim, and we see him laying down when he's on the community service. Do you think that some sort of like uh, back issue is also at play here with uh, Jimmy's turn to Saul? I, I don't know why, but I feel like that uh, having some sort of like a chronic issue issue, I feel like uh, only helps accelerate that he is uh, really not this light, happy uh, character that we saw at times in the first couple seasons. Especially, I mean, I would think it's untreated and unmedicated, and that uh, for sure can have an impact. Uh, he's not the kind of guy that has a lot of money, so I'm, I'm doubtful that he's going to doctors. So this was 2003, so he may not even have health insurance right now, what we're watching. He may, he may have gone without health insurance when he was working in private practice to try to save money. So a guy who can't find two nickels to uh, scrape together to make a dime a lot Unless of the time. Unless they're in a Band-Aid container. 
Unless they're in a Band-Aid container. That's a fair point. Uh, <laughs> that guy probably isn't, isn't taking care of himself in that regard. So you're right. Like That absolutely could cause the, the, the darker outlook, the negativity. And he says as much, uh, in a way, to Kim when he's lying on the ground in his office playing Smoke on the Water uh, on his purloined guitar. Yeah. He basically says, you know, like, listen, people suck and all these bad things are happening to me. My back hurts like hell. Like, so he's using that as an explanation for why he's being such a jerk to Kim. And uh, I think that that's fascinating to observe that this this could be an ongoing thing. I don't think you can slip as many times as Slippin' Jimmy probably has without uh, that coming back to, to haunt you at some point. Right, but I think that the Slippin' Jimmy game is a younger man's game. And I think yeah. that uh, he was not prepared for... Uh, it seems like, if I had to guess, this is probably the worst he's ever been hurt doing one of these. Yeah, and I I think that that's uh, there's a representation there as well. Just that the lengths that he's willing to go to and the things he'll put himself through at this point in his life, he's doing the things that he was doing when he was twenty and twenty one, hustling for beer and weed money, and now he's doing it to keep his lights on. And and it's all he can't do what he is clearly very good at doing and what we know he's effective at doing in terms of being an attorney. He can't even help old people write their wills because of Chuck and because of this vendetta with his brother so it's a thing where it's weighing on him physically it's weighing on him emotionally mentally he's not in a good place and it is not far of a fall from jimmy mcgill to saul goodman because of the combination of all these things okay well let's go back to that first scene that we saw in the episode with jimmy and marco in dad's old store Yes, uh, Poyo. And uh, we see, uh, were you excited to see Marco come back? First of all, I know, uh, sadly, uh, we lost Marco in the uh, season one finale. Yeah, it's uh, it's good. It's it's interesting to see him back because he showed up more in spirit with Jimmy's pinky ring in season two. When we see Jimmy looking at the pinky ring or adjusting it, we know that he's thinking about Marco and thinking about the con games. But it's nice to have the actor back and to have a scene from essentially that timeline, I think, that is a, a good representation of what this guy was to Jimmy. And, and by seeing this guy, we're starting to frame Jimmy in that mindset at the beginning of the episode. And I think that that's a, uh, that's a huge thing. We had a, a question from Laura Olson that says, what was up with the first scene? Were they at his parent shop to get a coin? Was that in the current timeline? So what did you think about this scene, Rob? Did you track this to the end of season one when Jimmy went to visit Marco? I think that that probably was in that timeline because the one thing I noticed was that there seemed like that there was a bag there yes. at the store yep. and the, yep. and the bag was for a uh, stand pipe. And I remember right. Marco talking about that. That's what he's doing now. Now he does stand pipe and it had been forever since Jimmy had seen Marco. And so yep. I feel like the only time that that's possible for, this scene to have uh, transpired was during that time when Jimmy went back to Chicago in the season one finale. Yes, I think that that's exactly what I was in my thinking as well. When Jimmy, I went back and watched that that end of that finale after this episode to refresh. And uh, yeah, Jimmy shows up there. Marco is passed out on the bar 
and he Jimmy wakes him up, says, I want to buy you a drink. It's uh, it's after Chuck has really revealed that he is the one who has blocked Jimmy from getting the job at HHM. It is he is the one that doesn't want Jimmy working on Sandpiper. And it's the big blow up where Chuck says, Jim slipping Jimmy with a law degree, that's like a chimp with a machine gun. He's like really rubs it in. And Jimmy's response is just to blow off and go back to Cicero and had take basically a week to what 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 Kim calls get it out of his system. And he, we see him hanging out with Marco. They run a little bit of a con at the bar, but this seems to be after that. And it seems to be during that week where they're running all kinds of cons together. It was a great montage in season one of that. Mm-hmm. So that's that was that was where I tracked it as well. This is during that time period, which means, unfortunately, it's a few days before the death of Marco. So there is some of that as well. Yeah. And we see him going up into the ceiling. Jimmy ends up pulling out this Band-Aid container with a bunch of rare coins in it or coins that Jimmy has pulled out of the register. And we sort of get a little bit more of the backstory about how that this was a uh, particularly valuable coin. Uh, Was it the Indian head penny or the silver uh, quarter? I think it was yeah it was the uh it was something that was I think it was the penny it was worth a, a few bucks but uh but they could polish it up and make it seem like it was worth a lot more. So they found that the Band-Aid container was just as important because it was where he stored the interesting things that he was taking from the cash register. He'd left it there. They're in the store. It's busted up. I didn't catch this initially. Uh, Shout out to the people on Reddit because I've seen it posted a million times. I don't know who the first person was, but that Band-Aid container we've actually seen before, Rob. Mm -hmm. Did you catch this? Um, Only because I have uh, the uh, Better Call Saul Reddit it open but uh this is very interesting yeah the band-aid container was seen in the first gene flash forward at the beginning of season one the first scenes of better call saul ever where we end up back at jimmy's house or saul's house and we see him get a uh, a box out of his closet that's hidden in there that's got a bunch of stuff in it he pulls the the videotapes of the saul goodman commercials out of that box and then watches them alone in the dark while he's drinking also in that box were some photographs and that Band-Aid container. So they found a way to bring that back, and we now know the significance of it. Yeah, it's the only thing that he has of his childhood, I guess, is uh, the coins that he took out of the register. Yeah, and it's just a connection to that to that previous life, to that uh, to that life. I really like this scene though because it it continues to remind us that that the character of Jimmy McGill, and by that I don't mean the character on the show. I mean how he acts, his morals, his goals, his his uh, his where he's pointing in, in any direction at any time. It's uh, up for debate. This whole stuff with the store, when we saw Chuck talking to Kim uh, at HHM when he was really trying to run Jimmy down, he was saying that the books of the store were screwed up. After their dad died, Chuck looked into it, and he blames Jimmy for essentially taking the store for over $13,000 over over a period of years. And when you hear Jimmy tell the story, yeah, Jimmy took some stuff out of the cash register. We actually saw it happen in that flashback where uh, the con man comes in and gets his dad to give him a bunch of stuff. And then when he's talking to Jimmy, he talks about wolves and sheep and how you should be one or the other. And it basically seems to set Jimmy on the road to grifting from the cash register. This is a lifestyle where Jimmy didn't take everything. His dad was a mark for people in the neighborhood. And his dad was constantly giving free stuff away. And Jimmy says in this scene, he wouldn't do what he he had to do. He was never going to do what he had to do. And I think what's fascinating about that is is knowing that Jimmy McGill is a good person on some level, and yet what we see him do in this episode is very much the con is being a wolf 
because it's what he has to do. It's feel it's what he feels like he has to do. He tries to work it straight with the Sklar brothers. He tries to play them on the level. They try to welch on him and screw him over. So then what what does he have to do? He has to do what he has to do. He's got to get his money. So that's what he does. And I think it's fascinating to think about. Chuck thinks Jimmy McGill is all bad. Jimmy sees it a little more nuanced and thinks the same about his father, that his father being all good was also bad. So there's a lot that is, uh, I think, reestablished and just discussed in this scene that plays out over the course of the episode and that we've seen play out over the course of the whole series. Yeah, his dad could have sold booze to minors. What was he thinking? Yeah. And cigarettes. Booze and cigarettes to Catholic school kids, right? Like, you could have gone the underhanded but route. But no, he couldn't do it. Right, yeah, and hey, look, you would have been a good store still for the other people in the neighborhood. You just would have also made a lot of money off selling cigarettes and booze to underage kids. Right. So Jimmy has a malleable sense of what's right and what's wrong. And every person came in with a sob story, and they'd leave with like a pat on the back, and uh, they'd give them stuff. But here's what I want to know, Antonio. Why this scene now? And that's kind of what uh, Laura was asking, and that's kind of what I'm getting at. Uh, I wondered the same thing as well. In my notes, I basically wrote down, like, this reestablishes the the Jimmy that we know in terms of he's a con man on some level, and this is a con that he's blowing. It recenters the idea that Jimmy is the kind of guy who views the world through this lens that isn't purely good or purely evil that has this sheep and wolf mentality and I think that line about he was never going to do what he had to do I think we see that very line play out over Jimmy's actions in this episode as I was saying so I think it, it reminds us of Jimmy being a con man it reminds us of Jimmy's dad being an easy mark and how Jimmy Marco. felt about that Poyo. It reminds us that Chuck was wrong about Jimmy ripping his dad off for the 13K, but right, the Jimmy did rip his dad off. Uh, it reminds us that Jimmy's view is that hard work and being well-liked doesn't matter at the end of the day, that you have to go to other lengths to do it. So I think when you talk about a series this season, it's been weird, and I think that Alan Sepinwall is going to have a deep dive with Peter Gould and Michael McKean. I know they were doing the rounds, and they did a Facebook Live event this week and stuff, and Sepinwall has been teasing it. But the the season, as, as Alan Seppenwall kind of observes, seems like it should have peaked at chicanery. That that seems like Chuck's trial and everything in that scene, that seems like it could have been the last episode of this season. And then it seems like the second half of this season has been recentering and rearranging a lot of these pieces and getting them into a position where we haven't been building for one big thing all season. It's a, it's a weird season in that regard because they don't really plan them out. They, they just follow the actions of the characters. So I think it's important that when we're taking Jimmy down this path that he ends up on in this episode and likely will the rest of this season, that we do remind ourselves that of what his his worldview is and how he might be straying for that worldview or actually pursuing the worldview that he was espousing when he was at his lowest last time Chuck ran him off. When he was at his lowest last time, this is where he went. This is what he did. He's in a similar position now, worse off, in fact. What's he going to do now? I think it reintroduces all that and it sets up that dramatic action for the rest of the season. Yeah, I don't know ultimately where this is headed to with two episodes left. So I'm not sure if we knew necessarily last season where it was headed to with two episodes left but maybe we could try to uh, piece that out other than Hector something bad is going to happen to him I don't know where uh, we're going in terms of the direction 
Yeah, the Jimmy stuff wasn't uh, wasn't as 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 prevalent uh, in terms of the the dramatic action rising near the end of season two as the Mike stuff, as you're observing. Uh, the Jimmy stuff was more of a, a of an afterthought. He had the Davis and Maine stuff. He went away from Davis and Maine. He was getting into a position where he and Kim were going to go out on their own, and that was his big pitch at the end of last season. Uh, and we're obviously in a much different position with him now. All of that has happened. He has changed. But Rob, we're not burying the lead, but we haven't really talked about it this season the ratings for better call stall better call Saul are still good by cable standards they they Uh, have better call stalled they have better call stalled they have in some respects uh the see the show has yet to be renewed for a fourth season it doesn't seem like anyone thinks that it's in danger of being canceled it wouldn't make a lot of sense but it has not yet been renewed for a fourth or fifth season and they're they're still either working on that deal or i don't know what they're waiting for but it doesn't that doesn't necessarily jibe with the way that uh, renewals are always done. It's very odd that we're still this late in the game and we haven't seen that. I don't think we're building toward a series finale in this season, but it would sure be a letdown if that were the case because there just doesn't seem to be a big moment that we're building towards with Jimmy unless it's a really big FU moment with Kim, which we'll certainly talk about when we talk about Kim in this episode. I mean, I can't imagine that uh, this is potentially going to be it after two episodes here for Better Call Saul. I feel like that, you know, we've been, uh, you have this like big character arc that we're trying to follow and I feel like that we need definitely more than two episodes to get there they haven't marketed this as any sort of like a series finale i mean is it the kind of thing where bob odenkirk doesn't want to do this for five like are they trying to sort of like nail down an end date with this and then maybe they'll announce like okay they're going to do two more seasons of this I think that's the the more likely scenario. If there's a reason for a delay, it's not that Bob Odenkirk doesn't necessarily want to do it. Uh, it's that there's a, a whole lot of people invested in that, and they're not going to switch showrunners on a show like this. Isn't The Walking Dead, where you know if there people don't want to make the show anymore, or House of Cards, uh, Fear the Walking two Dead. shows that we your fear of the walking dead like shows that we talk about here on post show recaps it isn't a situation like that where they're just going to flip the showrunner out and keep making the show this vince gilligan peter gold combo is what sold them on Saul to begin with and they brought vince gilligan in with a multi-season renewal of the show to begin with they announced a full second season when they weren't even done with three or four episodes of season one uh, or finished i should say because that was something they wanted to, to lock in and so this is a not only that but like this group that makes the show has been making this tv show the, the crew is very much connected to breaking bad the editors kelly dixon uh, is a breaking bad alum the person who was doing that on breaking bad a lot of the writers started in the breaking bad writers room as writers assistants or otherwise vince gilligan's assistant all the location stuff and the crew all, all of that are these people have been making tv now for almost 10 years so they're probably all as a group tired in some way of making the same things over and over and wanting to move on to something new so it wouldn't shock me if we get an announcement we're going to get two more seasons of better call Saul, and then that'll be it that would be very much in keeping with what happened with breaking bad uh, and their their theory of how to do storytelling that way uh, it would give them an end point to write to i think there are a lot of reasons why that could be on the table okay so we'll see if we have any news on that um so just to follow along with uh, what's going on with Jimmy, uh, to take it through his story, we saw a lot going on with the Sklar brothers uh, back at the guitar store. We did. <laughs> and I don't know. Uh, the Sklar brothers are funny, but they came off like real jerks here. Yeah, to me real now. jerky Sklar brothers. 
Yeah, the jerky, the, the jerky brothers. Yeah, this is uh, not not quite the same thing. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, this is just like I said. Jimmy set them up with a deal that, granted, it wasn't a great deal. They don't need seven different commercials. They're right about a lot of this, but they made the deal. They got a free commercial out of it, and the commercial worked. So Jimmy really did hold up his end of the bargain. It's not it's not Jimmy's fault that they agreed to a deal that didn't make a lot of sense at the time. They smelled a free commercial, and they thought, let's go for it. Well, they're backing out now, so they're not coming off as uh, as with clean hands, as we've talked about. So Jimmy, Jimmy does what Jimmy does. He... Uh, he slips into it. Yeah, I do think that Jimmy should have taken that 450 deal because he wanted originally to do the commercial for them. And I, was it going to be what a one-off? Was he doing one for them, or he or originally he was trying to sell them on uh, what was it the the executive package? Yeah, the executive package, the elite, elite package, package the, yeah, uh, yeah, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, and he was actually bumping the number up on that, too. He was trying right. to make his, his, his next couple months rent on that. Because, granted, he doesn't really... What he has to sell, he can't sell. He can't sell the airtime. He, he's not allowed to do that. So he has to sell a creative way to to be remunerated, like he, to be paid back for that airtime. And what he chooses to do is say, you're paying me for the production of these commercials, and it's an all-in thing, where you're going to get the ad time as well. So the brother has called the radio station, and he's got some fake news. He's like, you don't even work there. It's like, well, never did I represent that I worked there. But then they start talking about how the airtime itself is not going to be that expensive. And Jimmy's pointing out, you're not just paying for the airtime, you're paying for the production. Fair point. And that's when it comes like, okay, but why do we need seven different commercials? Like, why can't we just produce one commercial, pay you for the airtime? It doesn't have to be $6,000. It should be a lot less money. Oh, and by the way, your production, quote unquote, are college students. And we could get the same thing. So that was getting a little mean, I thought. Oh, yeah. They were being total jerks about it. Like, I don't blame Jimmy at all for slipping. And I like that he, it seemed like through his slip, he got like an awesome guitar that he had his eye on. He got a lot more money, it seemed like, than uh, maybe he got his full 6500 or whatever. He sold all his ads. Uh, doesn't seem like he's going to go back and make more commercials for these guys. So I don't know what their margins are, but they must have had a lot of cash lying around. Yeah. How much do you think he got? Seemed like he probably got the full 6500 And the like, guitar? And the guitar, so he sold all his ads. So we know we know he's paid back to he's paid back to the the TV station, which meant somewhere in the neighborhood of the low four thousands, I think, by the uh, by the time that this had aired, because he did sell one to the Duke City Recliners guy. Uh, so he sold one of them, uh, and he, so he is not he wasn't fully on the hook for the rest of the money that he owed. So he got that money back, and then it seemed like from what he was doing with Kim uh, by paying his, paying her back and getting square and saying he's he's covered for the next six weeks that he certainly got something in excess of that so i think he got his full uh his full 6500 and the guitar yeah okay so the next time we see jimmy he's going to be talking with kim but she has a lot going on on her plate uh in this episode uh actually literally uh when she's out to dinner with sandpiper or out to lunch uh and uh moscow mules all around antonio i've still never had a moscow mule but whenever i see it on the show it looks good 
I, I don't know what uh, the copper mug brings into the equation. I've had Moscow mules in various forms. Uh, they're good. They're good. But uh, I just don't I don't quite understand what that mug is. But, Rob, I was going to ask you, uh, in Breaking Bad, Walter White very famously uh, copped something from all the people that he took out. Mm-hmm. So if he took out uh, the guy, he took out somebody at the beginning of season one, and I, I don't want to go crazy spoiling, even though we've talked a ton, but he, he takes from him, I'm going to eat my sandwiches without crust and there are several other examples of this thing that walter white does the first time we saw moscow mules of course is where schweikert uh who is not named howard i believe his name is Stuart. Uh, i can't remember his first name but the guy who was recruiting kim to join his law yes. firm who was in opposition to sandpiper he's the one who really was like you got to get these moscow mules you got to have this mug you got to do these things is Kim, like Walter White, taking something from all of her previous bosses? I just think that the Moscow Mule is so delicious, Antonio, <laughs> that this is the place that, like, I guess th- that whatever bar this is, I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's always the same place, but yeah, this is I just what is. you get there. This is what they make. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Although it didn't seem like what that was that was what Kim was getting before she met uh, Mr. Schweiker. You so didn't know. I don't know. What yeah, he turned her on to it, didn't know about it. Yeah, turned her on to it. So now she's spreading that to Paige and Mesa Verde. Uh, and that uh, it's definitely it definitely made me think like, okay, so Kim is a protege of Howard, so we're going to see her use Howard like tendencies. Uh, and I think I think I'm more inclined to speculate on stuff like this because I've been listening to your House of Cards podcast, Rob, with Zach Brooks, where you guys just really delve into the arcane in terms of your theorizing, and I love it. I really, really love it because in many cases, I've seen ahead of you because I'm binge watching so I know what's coming so it's a really fun experience in that regard but I'm, I'm more inclined to do this here I think there could be something to this that Kim is I don't think it's a Moscow mule on accident they I don't I didn't see those at Howard's table I didn't see them at every table in the place mm-hmm. so at least uh, at least ostensibly even if it's just that he turned her on to him she's carrying this thing now that one of her previous uh, potential bosses or mentors uh, sh- shared with her so I think it's an interesting thing to track for Kim for sure because it's a Something that is in the fabric and the DNA of this show. So we see Kim. She's talking with the crew from Mesa Verde. And uh, we hear about this other project that Kim might get recruited onto. She seems hesitant before Howard ends up coming over to talk about everything. Did you get that also? I got that as well. Uh, And I'm interested to talk with you later about the scene with Kim and Jimmy and where that ends up. But she did seem hesitant about it. And in part, she seemed hesitant because she's very clearly been working like crazy for Mesa Verde. Like, she's not going home. She's not doing anything. We've seen her sleeping in her car. Like, this is a lot for one lawyer to handle. And she's doing such a good job that Kevin from Mesa Verde is like, oh, well, listen, if you're doing all this, I got a buddy. He's an oil man, and he's having a problem interstate. And I know how good you are and what good you've done for us. Can you help him out? And it's a great referral to get from your client. That This is how you build a law practice. You, you start working with a connected heavy hitter. You do well by them. They set you up with other connected heavy hitters, and pretty soon you're really making it rain. And so this is, for normally for a lawyer in private practice, this is a godsend. But she really, this is the kind of thing that you feel like if Jimmy were really able to practice law, this is a no problem for Kim. Because if something does spill over, she can get Jimmy's help the way she's helped Jimmy. And yet... 
this is uh, not something she's able to do because Jimmy can't practice. So I think she is reluctant to take it on because of how much she's already doing. All right, but here comes Hamlin, and he comes over to go and talk to uh, Mesa Verde. He tells Kim to uh, sit, which I feel like uh, probably did not land well with Kim the way that he tells her to sit like a dog. Right, sit. I insist. Yes. And so um, he's just basically uh, being a total uh, Howard here. Yeah, it seems like just yesterday you were logging hours in doc review. Like he's just really like in front of her client that she definitely won from them. Uh, he's really running her down. It's a bad look for Howard, if I'm being honest. Like him coming over to the table, remembering their names, showing that he was still paying attention to their case and their work. I think that's a mark in Howard's favor. That shows Howard to be what he is for HHM, which is the rainmaker, the guy who's bringing the clients in, going on the golf course, making the deals that he needs Chuck because Chuck is the the brilliant legal mind behind HHM. And that's not what we've seen Howard do. Howard is much more the guy who is bringing the business to the firm. So I thought that was a great look. But when he says, like, seems like just yesterday you were logging hours in doc review. That's a bad look because he is essentially putting down or or being uh, being, I don't know, pedantic, if you will, patronizing to Kim in front of the clients that love her and think very highly of her. Bad look for Howard. Yeah. And just when we were starting to like Howard a little bit. Just when we were starting to like Howard. Just when, and when Howard was starting to be a little appealing, we've seen him at his worst. But of course, this is not an easy deal for Howard. And I love how this scene shows the back and forth of this. Because what happens next, of course, is that Howard goes back to his table. Kim says, excuse me. She excuses herself, goes to the bathroom, writes the check. That is a repayment for the student loan repayment that Howard and HHM gave to her when she was leaving. Part of the reason she didn't want to leave HHM originally is they put her through law school and she was going to continue to work there to pay that back. And so when she left, she said, well, I'll figure out how to pay you back. And he said, it's a gift. It's fine. You know, consider it my gift. And so she, I think, feels a little bad about that in light of how he's treating her. And she wants to show him, like, I'm not beholden to you anymore. So she gets up, brings the check over to Howard. Did you love when she says to Howard, Howard, sit, I insist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That that was great. That was just so great. That's great. Uh, So she writes this check for $14,000 and I guess that's why they call it FU money because if you have that, then you can just basically say FU to people with it. Yeah, just throw it at him. Check form uh, and write everything but F you in the memo field of the check. And Howard is a little rattled by this as well. I just love this because Kim knew the people that were at the table with Howard. They are very closely linked because they work so, so closely together. And she really is an HHM protege. And they really did model and develop her that she knew, I think, that that would rattle Howard. And it was just really great because then she goes back to the table to talk to Mesa Verde. And that is when she he says like oh i what you were saying before kevin like have him call me I, i'll if nothing else i'll consult with him and i'll i'll refer it out she was starting to say maybe i could do these things before when howard walked over but she's now all in on that and i just love out of focus in the background you can see howard looking at her and being really rattled by what she just did i really think that's just he's a fantastic shook. way this scene he's shook he's shook he really is shook as the kids say he's shook and and you can see it out of focus he is not being like the composed with it presenting to the clients Howard he is not looking at them he's looking at Kim he's looking around he's rattled and uh, the payoff to that as we see in the next scene with them outside I think it's phenomenal yeah and so in that scene where we see uh, Howard and Kim continue this conversation uh, you know 
he does tell her that he's unhappy with her work defending Jimmy because he had to do damage control. Yeah. Uh, and I think on some level he has a fair point. Like this is uh, it's not Howard's fault that uh, that Chuck McGill went on the war path against Jimmy. Actually, what we saw behind closed doors was Howard trying to talk Chuck down off the ledge about this sort of thing and continuing to do that in the aftermath. Like him saying that this is not a worthwhile pursuit. He's not worth it. I'm not paying for the private eye. Him saying things like this to Chuck throughout saying, don't go on the stand. Don't do these things. So I don't blame Howard for being upset because he really did try to avoid this situation that he finds himself in. But on the other hand, Rob, Kim also has a point. Like the only reason it causes a problem is because Howard wasn't being honest about Chuck's condition with their clients to begin with. And so this is ultimately Howard's mess that he's made. And Howard probably doesn't know that Kim feels a lot of guilt over what Jimmy and Kim did to Chuck. And Kim shelves that. She puts it aside. She doesn't let Howard in on any of that. She just says, like, she doesn't I want to wear the to beads. do for my client. She doesn't wear the she doesn't want to wear the sin beads, right. Rob. She doesn't want to be the scapegoat. Like she doesn't want to show Howard that that he has some that there is some validity to the fact that she should feel bad for what happened with Chuck McGill. So I just I thought this scene was really dynamic. I really think that that what's going on in this scene and and just uh, the 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 long history of their relationship and how they both have at least some viable part of their argument and how she won't let him in on the part that she feels is viable and he's not going to grant her that she's got a point about how it's ultimately his bed that he made. I thought it was just a really, really dynamite scene. Right. Uh, and ultimately, the debt is still forgiven. Ultimately, the debt is still forgiven. And Howard is like, anything else that happens now, that's on you. And I just like, wow. So there could still be more. There could still be more chapters in this, uh, in this scenario. And he's saying, anything else, that's on you. He's saying that. And I think when we talk about Chuck in this episode, I'm going to want to put a, put a flag in that statement that Howard makes, because I feel like we could be we we have talked about it a ton. We could be seeing a a season that ends with Chuck McGill uh, no longer with us, and that will be something that falls into the category of anything else, and that will be something that Kim may wear as on her as a result. Oh my God, yeah, not good. Yeah, are you planning a flag, and you think that Chuck's going to die by the end of the season? Well, uh, I think it's uh, slightly interesting because I don't want to jump too far along. It is the next scene, uh, or it's a scene that we've seen before this, actually. Uh, but it is not uh, not a Kim and uh, Kim and Jimmy scene. But I think Chuck McGill in this episode, he's he's getting ahead of his skis. He's Icarus. I think he's flying a little too close to the sun, and I think it is going to come back to haunt him. I think there's a lot to be talked about with where are we headed with Chuck McGill in this second half of this season, and where. Could that end by the end of this season uh, I don't know I think it's it, I think it's at least very much on the table I'm not yet planting a flag but I'll plant a flag by saying if it does happen this is the sort of thing this scene between Kim and Howard where Howard says anything else is on you where we should remember like if it does happen what this emotional impact on Kim is going to be and why she might feel responsible. I think this is another brick in that. Okay, well, then let's talk about Chuck now. And then uh, there's only one other piece with Kim in the episode when she talks with uh, Jimmy when he's back at the office. So we do see uh, Chuck and um, I'm not sure if this is theater or not, but he's almost like, um, you know, when Grandpa Joe gets up out of the wheelchair in uh, Willy 
Wonka, he's like, yes, oh, of course. Uh, I've got a golden ticket. Yeah. It's like, uh, come on, Charlie, let's go. Uh, Burp, yeah. Charlie. I'll have a dinner party. I'll put lights on. Let's listen to some music in here. And is, is he just doing a shtick for the doctor or does he really feel this way? I think he feels this way. I think he, we see him having some small successes. Even calling the doctor in seems to be a success. And I think we're seeing Chuck acknowledging in that scene that, you know what, it's possible that this might be not a real thing. And what have I done if that's the case? And needing to confront that and wanting to deal with it, I think it's implied or at least openly discussed that the doctor has medicated Chuck to some uh, effect. It is probably something that is just like a, like a Xanax or an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety drug. It is probably not a drug to combat the electronic sensitivity, but uh, it does seem to have had an impact. I don't think it's theater because he goes to the grocery store and makes it out makes it out we've seen that be problematic with chuck any scene we see chuck being impacted by his condition is always really well shot on this show but i gotta i gotta throw this out to the reddit user deb underscore la whoever this is because deb pointed out chuck's description of what he wants in terms of his party he it ends with him basically saying like i want to be surrounded by my friends and family uh and and my friends and colleagues all these people i want a hundred people in here i want a big celebration Celebration. Uh, the music part doesn't read as much in this regard, but he could be describing something that ends up being awake for Chuck. Medina. Oh my God! Again, this is the if you're a Chuck, Chuck is dying truther. Uh, you could get to this point where the party he describes and having his house restored to its former glory and all these things, there's a possibility that that he's going to get his wish, but maybe in a way that he didn't intend. There's at least a possibility that his big description there uh, is one thing. My read on it in general was just that he, in being so grandiose with what he's describing, he is flying very close to the sun, and he's putting himself uh, a kind of, uh, with his immersion therapy, back into a position where he could easily have a set, he could slip himself, Rob. He could have a setback, he could have a relapse, and as we've always talked about, like, if he has a worse setback than what we already saw at the end of season two where he almost died it seems like the next setback the worse one is going to end with him dying so it really feels like whether it's theater or not he's flying very close to the sun here. so do you think that he just needs to uh slow down what he's doing or do you think that it's all going to just end up uh having a major meltdown i think he's got to slow down what he's doing but i feel like he's he's pushing all in and I think that that ends that ends in a bad place. I just don't think you can go from where he was to where he wants to end up with a big party and music and his electric back on and all of that. I just don't think you can get there without uh, without some setbacks. I think it's too much of a hill to climb, and he seems to really be pushing it and really be going all in. I mean, you're talking about a guy who went from the the struggle to walk to the telephone to he's now successfully completed a trip to the grocery store so he is making a lot of progress i just feel like that progress is going to come with the setback and i like i said i just feel like if he if he has a really bad episode in, as far as that goes the only way for it to be worse than the last time is if he does die so what is that therapy that he's trying to do with uh okay purple plums uh green limes white sign orange orange oranges just like naming things helps him 
Yeah, I think he's just centering himself. He's centering his brain and brain function, not on focusing and dwelling on all the electricity around him, but on living in the moment in terms of that's a green sign, that's an orange orange, that's a blue shirt, that's a blue sign. Like, focus your brain on very simple things so that your brain doesn't go completely haywire and short out on you. And I really feel like that's what he's doing. It reminded me of like, uh, what about Bob? Baby steps to the door, mm-hmm. baby steps to the elevator, baby steps getting on the elevator. Like it reminded me of just this, I'm going one little thing at a time, I'm centering myself and I'm focusing on the very moment to moment rather than getting just completely caught up by everything that's going on all around me. I'm, I'm seeing the trees, not the forest. Okay, that's important. Yeah, I just think that Chuck could easily find himself in a position where if he doesn't operate this way, I thought he was close. I mean, the way that scene ends when he's walking the down the milk. frozen food yeah. aisle to the soy milk. Yeah, I, we just I thought it I was like, was did he just pass out right there in that aisle? And then he walks back basically with a spring in his step and a, a song on his lips when he when he meets up with Howard, like he had no problems at the store. So I just feel like this is a guy who is pushing himself. And that's great. That's growth for Chuck. He's just not really ridiculous. I don't think as a character, I don't think the show is interested in redeeming them. I think they're more interested in setting him up for a fall from this grace that he's trying to achieve. Yeah, they always do a good job with fluorescent lighting to depict uh, what's going on with Chuck. It always reads well on TV. They re- it really does read well. They do a fantastic job of making his condition seem like it could be possible, dating all the way back to when he goes and steals his neighbor's paper with the space blanket on. And you see his perspective where the world is shorting out. It's not just the, the way it's shot. It's the sound design. It's the, the acting by Michael McKean. It's all of that. And it, they do a fantastic job of that. And I love my favorite part of that is when you see it from his neighbor's perspective, he's a crazy person running around with a space blanket on you get none of that demented world that we see from chuck's perspective all you get is him being a crazy person and i think they do a fantastic job of making it seem real to him i think that's really important because there's plenty of times where we've said chuck is faking it chuck is taking advantage of his condition in order to get more of what he wants and i think all of that is true but i i think he is i think it's true that he is manipulated it's true that he uses it to his advantage a lot of the time but i also think that there's a very real thing going on with Chuck McGill. And I think it's important to remind us of that. I thought the supermarket scene didn't really add a ton to the narrative of the episode in general, but I think it's important for us to remember Chuck McGill is a screwed up guy. Yeah. And uh, I think it's important to see that journey. I, I'm again, we talked about him like the last two episodes ago. I, he wasn't in the uh, previous episode, but uh, we thought that he might be headed to try to get back on his feet. I don't think either of us expected it to be uh, him to have made that much progress so quickly to go back to uh, something that might set him off. Uh, We see later on in the episode that Hamlin comes and says, um, you know, he's surprised to see that Chuck has gone to the grocery store, but Chuck is doing great. But there's something you need to know about your malpractice insurance. Yep. (laughs) And that's the other shoe that we've been waiting uh, since Jimmy really put him since he dimed him out. Like that's been a possibility. I'm glad to seeing it come. I'm glad to see it come back into play so quickly. Uh, it does seem like it's a lot worse than Howard really makes it seem. Where he's like, ah, 
maybe we should sit down and talk about this. Uh, we talked in this podcast about how you could even see Chuck dropped uh, from his insurance carrier because it's essentially fraud in many respects. He has a debilitating mental condition that if you're a lawyer, you have to report to your insurer. It'd be like not reporting that to your health insurance company or not reporting some serious problem. They're insuring his viability as a lawyer. It's malpractice insurance. And so for them, he's a much bigger risk for malpractice if he's lying about all these things. And they could easily just have dropped him. And then at that point, if he doesn't declare it with subsequent insurers, then he's guilty of fraud with them. He may actually be uninsurable. It's going to be a problem for him for sure. Mm -hmm. And he's going to blame Jimmy. He's absolutely going to blame Jimmy for that. And then then where are we? Then we're at a Chuck McGill who... He doesn't seem to be talking about Jimmy, focusing on Jimmy. Jimmy doesn't come up at all in all these dealings. He's focusing on himself. But this brings Jimmy right back into his world in a way that is going to upset him. And then what's that going to do to his recovery, Rob? I have a feeling that could be a thing that causes a major problem for him. So do you think that he just blames Jimmy from the trial? Or do you think that he's able to figure out that Jimmy actually went down to the uh, malpractice insurance office and gave them information which made them look into Chuck Miguel. It seems more likely that that's going to be uh, the re- the result, that it's going to be something more directly linked to Jimmy from the jump. Uh, he Chuck is, a, is nothing if not a snobbish man who is not willing to accept culpability. So he's not going to willing, he's not going to be willing to accept that the reason it happened is because he chose to take the stand when he didn't need to, and he shouldn't have, that he put himself in this position. He will never accept that. He's a blamer, and he will blame Jimmy for what happened. Whether or not he knows that Jimmy actually overtly dimed him out, or whether he just blames him for the incidents in the court, he's going to blame Jimmy. And I think it's way more likely that How- that he's smart enough and Howard's smart enough to piece together that this isn't a thing where they just happened upon it. They're going to find responsible parties uh, who they can blame for this, and Jimmy's going to be at the top of that list. But I think other people will be as well. So it'll be interesting to see where this ends up. But I I really think that it's going to be a blame Jimmy thing almost instantly. Chances of a Chuck and Jimmy confrontation before the end of the season. Two episodes. Do you want that? Do you want to see I think we have to, right? I think we probably have to, uh, especially, I mean, there's a lot of time if we're going to have a, a season ending with Chuck dying. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I feel like we need to cover. And I'll say, I'll play my flag. I think that uh, Chuck's going to live. Chuck yeah. lives. Yeah, I, I got it. I understand. I I just feel like the seeds the seeds are being sown that Chuck might not live uh, or that Chuck is going to Look, be I like the call. in a very bad it's position. It's great for the Better Call Saul hot takeoff. Um, uh, I think uh, <laughs> the chalk pick is that Chuck lives. Yes. I just don't know. There's just not a lot of – there's not as much weight in – Kim feeling guilty about what they did to Chuck. If Chuck is like flying high and gets his life back together, Kim's going to feel good about that. And ultimately, that will be good for her and Jimmy because they'll be like, you know what? We did the right thing. We helped this guy ultimately by doing what we did. And he ended up in a better place. And look, now he's cured. And we did that by exposing his issue. I think it's way more likely you're going to get the dramatic mileage out of Kim and Jimmy if something worse happens to Chuck as a result Mm. of all of this. And I don't see how something worse can happen to him unless he dies. Yeah. So I don't know that it's going to happen before the end of this season. Just like I don't know if a Kim and Jimmy split is going to happen before the end of the season. And when we talk about that scene in the office there, we'll get into some questions we got from listeners about that. But I just... uh, 
I just feel like I feel like that is the 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 big story is Kim and Jimmy. They're going to 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 come apart ultimately at the end of the day. The Chuck thing is already weighing on Kim very heavily. If it gets better and Chuck is great, I don't see how that's not a positive for Kim. I just think it's going to take Kim down. So I think we're going to end up with a Chuck and Jimmy confrontation before the end of this season. And I do think that that confrontation could be the very thing that causes Chuck to ultimately snap. Although I don't know how we could fit that into this season that already saw a confrontation like that where Jimmy was literally cross-examining him and put him in the position where he blew up last time. I don't see how in two episodes we build to that. What if Chuck just shows up somewhere and takes Jimmy by surprise because he's quote-unquote recovered and he eventually snaps, not necessarily because of his sensitivity, but because of whatever cruel stuff Jimmy says to him in the moment. That's interesting. Um, we could see that uh, if Chuck ends up going down to uh, the uh, McGill-Wexler headquarters, just a pop-in. Just a little Chuck pop-in, pop-in. A little Chuck Poppin. Yeah, do you, Chuck Poppins. Yeah, it's like Mary Poppins. Do you think that we need, there is one big thing that Chuck knows that Jimmy doesn't, uh, and I don't know that we need to see it. I don't know if it's a, a Jane and Walter scenario from Breaking Bad or not. But Chuck knows that his mom died asking for Jimmy on her lips, and he refused to tell Jimmy that. He did not tell Mm -hmm. him that. Is it a scenario where when Chuck really wants to dig the knife in on Jimmy, when it gets darkest, is Chuck going to say, you know, when mom died, she asked for you. She was asking for you, and you disappointed her by not being there at her bedside when she passed away. Uh, Is that something Chuck could pull out in a big fight that could really try to cut at Jimmy? I feel like that, that disappointed Chuck more than it would disappoint Jimmy. Yeah, because she didn't ask for Chuck. I agree. I just don't know what Jimmy would ultimately, if that would be like, oh, that, I mean, the, the, that's disappointing. Uh, I like th- That doesn't seem to me like the kind of thing that's going to really shake him. Yeah, I don't know. You'd have to write it in such a way, right, where Chuck was building to something, where he was basically saying, you're never there. You're not reliable. You're slipping Jimmy. You're a bad person. You can think you can think you're a good person or that you're doing right, but you're not. Uh, you're such a bad person that you went off to get food instead of staying at mom's side, and she woke up and asked for you, and she died not knowing where you were. Like that's something that could carry a lot more weight. Well, I mean, for people Jimmy. need to eat. I mean, it wasn't like you went off to go, you know, have sex with the nurse while mom was looking for you. True, but to Chuck, the fact that Jimmy left at all was problematic, mm-hmm. right? Like. And Chuck didn't leave. Chuck didn't need to eat. And Chuck didn't need to do that. And why did it have to be right then? And all of that. So I don't know. I just, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm talking about it because I'm not sure how I feel if that's something that's ever going to come back up later or not. I, I don't know that it will. But I feel like other than that, what more confrontation is there for Chuck and Jimmy to have? Like what, what issues do they have that haven't been fully exposed in the very uh, fantastic dramatic scenes and confrontations we've seen between the two of them at the end of season two, at the end of season one. I mean, it just feels like season one ends with a confrontation like that that sends Jimmy to Marco. Season two ends with a confrontation like that that gets Jimmy on tape. Season three, our confrontation really kind of already occurred in the middle of the season. So are we going to get another one before the end of the season? And if we do, what do we put into that that has any weight at all? And so that's the only thing that I can really find grasping at straws that hasn't been exposed already. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see what happens in those final uh, two episodes. So let's talk about that Jimmy and Kim scene uh, that we've been leading up to where we got to see Jimmy playing uh, Smoke on the Water once again. Any significance to Smoke on the Water? I feel like that we We've heard it a number of times uh, being played in the series. 
Yeah, it's sort of the ballad of Marco in many ways. Like it's a song associated with Marco. It's uh, the the noise of the song when Marco is drunk, laying on the ground as part of their cons. It's come up uh, when Jimmy is driving away at the end of season one, never to uh, return to the law practice again, except doing exactly that at the beginning of season two. Smoke on the water is what plays. So this is a uh, this is a character note for Jimmy for sure. This is his uh, this is his dark slip and Jimmy song. This is not his upbeat uh, Jimmy McGee like I'm happy to be an elder law lawyer song. This is his, uh, his Marco. I mean, song. does the song have a particular connotation? Not that I know of. I always thought smoke on the water was very much a, just a marijuana reference, but, uh, I'm not sure. Smoke on the water and fire in the sky. Like what is, uh, are you picking up any connotation? Mm, I'm not sure. Uh, let me see over on the urban dictionary. Uh, they say that the song from, uh, deep purple, uh, considered one of the best rock songs ever. I mean, it's a. I guess it's about a fire. Is that right? Smoke on the water, fire in the sky. So if it's about a fire, are we going to see a Chuck McGill house fire? Is that like we we had worried about it with the camping lantern and the newspaper, and that's always been the big concern. Uh, but I don't know what Chuck could be doing that was so confident. I mean, when I say flying too close to the sun, fire and the melting of the wax wings is exactly what happens. Is this tipping off a potential burning down of uh, Chuck's life? Yeah, uh, I don't know. We'll see. Um, the Urban Dictionary describes it as uh, the uh, smoke that is left in, uh, on the water in a bong. So I don't think that that's necessarily... That's what I always thought. Yeah. That's what I always thought. But they made thought, a song right? about yeah, that? So... That doesn't seem like a... Like, you know, an inspiring, like, uh, you mean people don't just get high and write silly music. Mm, I guess, I, mean, I guess so. But it seems like, uh, you think that there would be like, uh, like that would be so inspiring. Yeah. I don't know. It's deep purple. It was a 1970s rock. I don't know. All right. So, uh, we'll see if any of our listeners can, uh, I'm sure people must know, uh, what it means. Well, apparently, I'm looking at it right now, apparently, uh, a fire destroyed the recording venue, uh, and that was what was going on. Like, they were recording a, a song, or, or set to record a song, and it burned down, and so they wrote a song about that fire, I guess? Oh I don't God. know. Uh, there's probably a much deeper story here, but if it's about fire, I think that's the only secondary meaning it could have, and again, everything we've talked about already, and just the likelihood of a fire at Chuck's house to begin with, I feel like that's the only fire I could see really having a big impact. Okay. So we see that Jimmy has the money. He has the guitar um, that he's being very short with Kim. Um, and uh, he's telling her that people suck. Um, he also ends up saying that his back is hurting him. That's why he's being so short with Kim. Right. Kim is trying to be uh, compassionate with him. She offers that she can carry the team until he's back to 100 percent. Yeah, she she sees a reclining and prone Jimmy. I think that another key detail in this conversation that's revealed, she's saying, like, when did this happen? And she was like, that was yesterday. She's lost track of time and they aren't seeing each other much. And that's another thing about Jimmy being rudderless uh, to the extent that Kim provides a moral center for him. Uh, last episode, we saw her essentially talking him out of the cons that he very much wanted to run for real in that hotel bar. She is his moral center. Without her, he's a little rudderless, and she hasn't been in his life. She basically stopped by to pick up some clothes, and he hasn't seen her in days. And that's because she's working so much. And 
So I think that that's the other aspect of this is she's willing to cover for him. She's willing to do that. There's a lot of humanity in that, but I think there's some guilt there too. Like, well, I should cover for him because this is my boyfriend and we haven't even been seeing each other. So I may as well make something out of this by taking care of him if I'm going to work so much. And Jimmy doesn't want it. Jimmy's never wanted it. And he's kind of a jerk about it in many respects. But as you said, he puts it up to his hurt back and just the general way that other people have treated him. We always take it out on those closest to us. So I think this is a problem. It's a big problem. Uh, we had we had a tweet ultimately from uh, Jay Ragermeister, and Jay said, I think we're about to see the end of Jimmy and Kim, or at least we've seen the start of the end now. Is that how you read this scene, Rob, that this was bad, bad uh, juju for Rob, for Kim and uh, Jimmy in this scene? Uh, I definitely think it was bad. Is it the beginning of the end? I mean, I, I just don't think that the show is going to, you know, get rid of, uh, you know, uh, Chuck potentially and Kim. There's just such like key figures in Jimmy's story. I just think that we're in the for the long haul with these guys. Yeah, and I don't know if you let's say let's say that that Chuck McGill does die on 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 Better Call Saul. Doesn't have to be this mm-hmm. season. Can be any season. I don't know if you have if let's say if they have five seasons or they have six. Do you have value in taking Chuck into season four, which we're about to enter into? Does Chuck dying in, at the end of season three here make season four about Jimmy and Kim falling apart uh, and really uh, just trade on a lot of what we've already talked about with what's happening with Kim here? And are we going to see that play out in season four? And is season five then the the way that we clean that? Are we going to get into the gene stuff really heavily there? So that's what I'm not sure about. I'm not sure about how if you could, if you took Chuck off the table, how much longer you would take for Jimmy and Kim to fall apart. But I agree with uh, Jay Rage. Meister and others who are basically saying that this is probably the beginning of the end. There's certainly a strain on Jimmy and Kim at the very least for financial reasons and also because Kim doesn't feel good about what they did with Chuck and she doesn't and Jimmy won't talk about it. And Jimmy is also going to slip now into it seems making his money a more uh, let's say way that Kim wouldn't approve of. So there's that aspect of it as well. All of it is trending in the wrong direction for the two of them. I just don't know when. Uh, but I think it's certainly, I, I don't think we're going to get better. I don't think we're going to get to a place where they put this behind right. them and then they... It's all downhill from here. So if, if you want to say it's the beginning of the end in that way, yeah. But I don't think yep. that that end is yep. an immediate one. I agree. I don't think we're, I don't think we're there with the, the immediacy of the ending. But I think the wheels are very much already in motion. The things that are going to lead to the end, I think, are what we're seeing develop at the end of this season. Okay, and we see where Jimmy is also saying to Kim, hey, you believe me, right? You believe me that I'm going to be able to, uh, you, you believe my story, Antonio. <laughs> yes, I, I, you're here, so why wouldn't yes. I believe you? Yeah, uh, that is ultimately what he's saying, and... She shouldn't believe him because it's not entirely true. Uh, But I think that that seems important to him. And look, the the fact is we've seen him lying to her already. Like we saw him lying about, or at least we felt like he was lying. She's like, you're not draining your bank accounts, are you? You're not maxing your credit cards out, are you? So he's been lying to her already. And this dishonesty is a, it's a poison pill that is going to have an impact on the rest of their relationship. And it's important to him that she believe him, but he's lying. So that's not good. It's never a good look in a relationship when it's very important for one of the partners to have the other partner believe a lot 
lie that they're telling. Uh, and I think this uh, this doesn't, it's just, again, it's all rolling downhill in a bad way for yeah. these two. And so right after that, we see Kim jump on a call. Do you feel like, is she, you know, really diving into this because she feels like she needs the extra income? Were these two conversations connected? I, they're connected, but I was going to ask you because I don't have a good read on why. Uh, my best read on why is that she's willing to take the work on because she doesn't feel like she wants to be around Jimmy. Oh, <laughs> like, like, like I, you know what? I was working all this way, and I, I didn't want to work because I need a work-life balance, and I can't do this extra work because of work-life balance. But now that my partner is just an irascible, like, bad person who is like sitting on the floor and like, yeah, he's charming and he's still the guy that I care about, but. He's not the kind of guy I really want to be around right now. Mm-hmm. He's cranky. He's, he's hurt. Like, I don't want to hang hold out on, with that hold guy. On like, I'm happy to throw myself so back. So you're, yeah, you're saying that when uh, you are with someone who is, you know, has a mood swing, then what you could do is just really throw yourself into your work. <laughs> this is what you're saying, what you're telling me? I know this is this is a stunning revelation for this you. Is, I'm going to write this yeah, down. Yeah, I really... Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's something. Uh, this may change your life, Rob. This may change your life. This is. I know this is something very uh, unfamiliar to you, but uh, yeah, that's something. Well, that the can thing happen. I always think about is, um, I think it's the fifth season of Mad Men. Not to uh, give a any, this is not a major Mad Men spoiler or anything, but when Don Draper, uh, you know, starts, uh, you know, uh, going off and. Uh, um, you know, he's all smitten with his uh, new girlfriend. Everybody's like, boy, Don Draper's really uh, half-assing it around the office. We never see him anymore. Yeah, he doesn't care about work. He's he's wanting to do this other stuff. So my only read is If that you got something better going on, this, yeah, sure. What's work? Forget it. Yes, right. But when you don't have anything better to, to do, to do uh, give me more yeah. work. I need, to make, I need to make it rain. The reason I say that is... I think that you can't leave that conversation with Jimmy where he's just showed up with a bunch of money. He sold his ads. He doesn't seem to be uh, really out to try to make more money right away. He's saying, you don't need to cover me. I got this. And then she walks away from that conversation and says, oh, I better take more work on. I didn't feel like the tone of that conversation was Jimmy doesn't really got this, as he puts it. Uh, I feel like the tone of that conversation was, shit, he's coming through. He said, bet on me and I'll deliver, and he's delivering. So I, should, I shouldn't have to take more work on just to make money. So I think the only reason she's doing it is she doesn't want to be around Jimmy okay, as much. That's an interesting read. Yeah, that's all I've got. I mean, I don't know. Did, uh, did you know? I, I was just like, oh, that that's interesting that, that we just go and right into her like, hey, you know, wheeling and dealing on this. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's why. That's just for me when I look at the all the reasons I I went back and watched the scene again. It didn't seem to me like she was skeptical throughout that scene. And she had no reason to be He'd just given her a bunch of money, sold all his ads and and seemed to be doing OK in terms of like not feeling the need to get right back out there and hustle. So maybe she is being Kim Wexler and just over preparing. And maybe she's making hay while the sun shines and feeling like, listen, I don't know if I'm going to have to take care of this guy later. So I better go make the money I'm going to I'm going to make. But I don't know why she didn't feel that way before. If anything, Jimmy coming and handing her money is a point against that argument. So there has to be something else. In okay, here. let's uh Touch on that other Jimmy scene. You know, we talked about it at the top of the show about Jimmy at the community service and uh, what he needs to do to be able to uh, make that $700 from the guy who's trying to uh, get out from the uh, parole officer. That's not the right title. What, what is he? 
I don't know, some kind of corrections. Like, uh, community, yeah. Yeah. Corrections. She's a CEO, like a corrections officer. Yeah. In some way, shape okay. or form. And uh, Jimmy has it out for this guy after uh, the events from uh, a couple episodes ago. Right. Jimmy, uh, no, no love lost for this guy. And this guy does seem to be a real jerk, but he's just doing his job. Like his job is to not let people who are guilty of violating uh, laws in some way, shape or form, or at least alleged to be out here and just do whatever they want. Talk on their phones, not work, leave whenever they want. Doesn't work that way. Like he says, and I think an accurate way to look at this is. Think of your community service time as like jail time. This is you in lieu of jail doing your jail sentence. So you have to behave the way you would under the care of a corrections officer in jail. I'm a corrections officer outside of this. So pick up the litter and don't screw me over. And even though he's a jerk about it, he's just doing his job. But that's that doesn't jibe with what Jimmy wants. And so we see that he makes this deal with the guy and uh, I'm going to prove it to you. You're going to get your time and you give me the money. And so uh, he goes over and starts saying, I'm going to sue you. I'll sue you if you don't let me uh, do what I want. Uses a lot of legal jargon and certainly uh, Saul Goodman's his way into making this uh, what had appeared to be a pretty uh, a pretty cool customer in the previous episode just really fold under the weight of what he's putting at him uh, throwing at him at this point such that he's willing to violate the rules of his job in a pretty uh, significant way. Let's one of them go and he's giving Jimmy credit to just lie on the ground and do nothing. So this uh, is a lot of work. It's great to see. I loved seeing Jimmy McGill be slipping Jimmy and do a fantastic job of that. Seeing an artist, a master at work. I think that's the first time we've ever seen him execute a slip on this show. And then see him be Saul Goodman and be really good at the other thing that he's good at, which is using his mouth to talk his way out of situations or to get what he wants. And we've seen that on the show before. We've seen it right away in the second episode of the entire series. But it's great to see him be not only slipping Jimmy, but Saul Goodman in do the kind of work that we know he can do in both respects and in a very good good way with this guy and yeah it works he's lying on the ground and he he looks way happier about that seven hundred dollars than he ever did about the the measly 700 that he got for the trial at the beginning of the series when he was fighting is like three defendants i should get 700 times three and she was like it's not my fault you chose to have one trial but uh this is a very different jimmy mcgill he's so happy to have earned this 700 through hard work uh and i think he feels better about this 700 than he ever did about yeah, that number. Well, uh, that's a good bookend that you picked up on with the double $700. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, I just happened to have recently rewatched the series mm-hmm. so it jumped out to me and anyone who's done that it's going to jump out too. Uh, this is just a guy, I think in general, bookend or not, who feels more at home and who feels more like he's earned the money when he has earned it through chicanery. Yeah. When he's earned it through slipping Jimmy means that that's the sweeter money for him than the money he got from Davis and Maine, where they were paying him a great salary to just play by the rules. He hated yeah. that. Um, when he's having the conversation with the uh, corrections officer, uh, Jimmy McGill uses the term uh, like a fart in the wind um, yes. that uh, he uses this in Breaking Bad, this term, right? 
Yes, he does. And he talks disappearing, about disappearing right, like a fart right. in a wind. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, not really something that could withstand, you know, the elements in that regard. He uses it in a different way here. But I was, it was nice to hear that that Saul Goodman vocal flourish uh, play it's, out there. I love hearing that stuck. flourish. It's for stuck. Sure. Un- unlike the uh, fart and said wind, uh, the expression, the expression <laughs> stuck. Um, all right, well, let's touch on uh, a couple of the other uh, storylines going on from uh, the other side of the aisle. And um, we'll get we'll talk about the uh, Mike stuff, but really uh, Nacho had uh, a um, a big featured role uh, in this episode as we saw that he's working with these pills. Uh, We saw him talking with Price. We know he was getting the empty pill capsules. What does he end up filling these pills with? Just like a generic like ibuprofen? Yeah, either that or something more untoward. I'm not a hundred percent sure because the the scam, right, is that is that he's that he's going to need the pills. Hector's going to need the pills, and when he goes to take them, he's going to take a pill that has no effect or has a negative effect. And I think it's probably just like yeah, a placebo, something that's not going to help the problem that the nitro pill would be forestalling. But it, it could be something more dangerous. It could be some kind of poison or something like that. I think it's better if uh, if it's something that is that is meaningless or harmless than it is if he shows up because if they autopsy him and he's got poison in his system that's going right. to bring a lot of eyes there's no reason to switch the pills right. back right uh, i think it's just a lot better if just okay whatever he needed to, doesn't work i mean we saw him have one of those attacks it looked uh pretty bad if he doesn't get the pill right away yeah uh so who knows who okay. knows um so he goes into uh filling up these uh pills and then he goes into extensive rehearsal for uh dropping this uh this transfer he does uh and thankfully he does because it's a very stressful incident when we see it play out and it was a I thought that was a really cool sequence. I thought the the music was great in this sequence. I just thought Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul famous for their montage work. As far as montages go, I found this one to be a, one of their better ones. I just thought that the the song choice was really key. The way that played out uh was really suspenseful the first time through, and I think it really did a great job of setting up how the ultimate uh thing played out. So seeing it seeing it develop Yeah, was really and then good. the pill exchange scene I think was nerve-wracking but I really did enjoy it. You know, uh, we see him the night before, like he breaks the air conditioning. So it's hot enough where Hector is going to take off his blazer. And then uh, we see the different steps where he ends up like going and trying to show him a $50 bill. And then he drops stuff on the floor. uh, And then uh, finally does like the behind his back toss into Hector's jacket pocket. Yeah, and uh, it's so stressful. I, I was sweating almost as much as Nacho in that scene. Shaking hands, sweat everywhere. The pocket's not the right pocket. The cook is there in the kitchen kind of watching over uh, the stove, but potentially watching over anything else. Nacho is really on edge. This whole thing was really difficult to watch executed, and it was such that the warning in the previously on from Mike well, was front of mind for my, for me in that moment because Mike just basically says, listen, if you switch the pills, switch them back. And now I'm worried that if it was this stressful to get the pills in there, how is the switch back going to happen? Is it going to be worse? Is he going to get caught? Like all of this made me feel very nervous about what was happening with Nacho. I don't know how nervous you are, Rob. We had, uh, we had Thor Atkinson asked, I had no idea what length Nacho was willing to go to to do the pill switch. 
wouldn't it be a lot less risky to put a single pill with poison in the bottle? He's going to eat them all eventually, and that way he wouldn't have to switch them back, unless it's a matter of urgency and he needs it to happen ASAP. I'm curious about your thoughts. And then we also had a question from Johnny D. Silvera that said, safe to say Hector's going to succumb next week, or will it be in two weeks? And he also, Johnny D. Silvera asked, does Nacho survive the season? And I feel like these are the stakes right now, right? Like, we're two episodes left. Nacho was going to go to great lengths to do this and I think he did have to because of the urgency with his dad as we saw his dad in this episode but is this going to come to a head by the end of this season right and and is somebody going to be in a much worse position that's interesting uh I feel like that Nacho makes it to season four I feel like that uh, maybe we need to have a a draft of who's in season four and who's (laughs) not but uh I feel good about this plan working okay uh and so I'm bullish you I the plan will work. I'm bullish as well that the plan should work. But do are you satisfied with Nacho being the one who ultimately causes the scenario that puts Hector in the wheelchair? Or would you rather see that play out via another character like Mike or Gus? Oh, um, you feel like, is it not earned enough if Nacho is the one to put Hector into the wheelchair? Well, Nacho has plenty of reason to do it. We saw that play out this season. The stuff with the dad, the fact that Hector is just basically making him beat Crazy 8 down to the ground. And we know Hector's a scumbag and a horrible person. But as far as it goes, uh, Gus and Mike are Breaking Bad characters, and we know where the Hector story goes in Breaking Bad. It just feels like it would be more connected to that story if it were one of the two of them that were responsible for what happens, perhaps in part... I, my concern would be that if, if you're talking about a world where Nacho doesn't make it, Mike might feel responsible for that in much the way that Kim would feel responsible if Chuck didn't make it because Mike had the opportunity to intervene and he didn't. He did give him a warning of make sure you switch the pills back, but he didn't stop him. And that maybe is not enough of a warning if, if what happens is it gets exposed. So in a world where Nacho gets caught doing this and he's killed, if Mike feels responsible for that, is that the sort of thing that can set Mike on a different path than we've seen him right now, which is a path where he's not willing to get his dirty as he probably needs to be. On the other hand, I think we already see Mike on that path by the end of this episode because he needs to launder his money. So I don't know that Nacho is going to die from this. I just don't know that I don't know that Nacho doing it is the most beneficial way to have this. Plan. Yeah, it'll be something uh, to follow over these next couple of episodes. Uh, this is one thing we will definitely see before the end of season three, how this plays out with Hector. Yeah, and that's why, as Thor points out, like uh, why why switch um, just not just switch one pill. Um, this is why because you could you could dope up his drink all you want, but you need it to happen as soon as you need it to make sure, you need to make sure it'll right. happen. And the only way you can make sure it'll happen is if you switch. Right, you don't know which pill he's going to take eventually. Like, okay, well, you know, when he has like fifteen attacks, okay, sooner or later he's going to get to that other pill. But I think that switching one pill probably is. Um, I, I guess you know if this thing Nacho needs to move now is what the issue is. It's like if you just wanted yes. Hector to be bumped off sure just put one bad pill in there although if Hector feels like it's not working he could just take two pills you know right I don't know how much time <laughs> right, he has exactly you could just go sure. for another one it's like exactly. oh, this isn't kicking uh, in and you're not doing poison like we talked about it's probably a placebo because you don't want to right. get caught you don't want it to be malicious you want it to look like guy has a heart condition died of heart condition like that's that's the best case scenario for nacho there won't be any blowback if it looks natural 
this is the best way to make it seem that way. You get him to take a placebo pill. It doesn't work. He has an incident. And while that's going on, you switch the pills back. So when they look at the pills, they're like, the pills were fine. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Talking about Mike, uh, we see him in the beginning of the episode. Again, a mini little montage uh, for Mike with lots of mics on the screen. <laughs> how many mics uh it's like it's like a review in the source magazine yeah it's like how many mics uh can we get here it's a definitely a five mics kind of album cover there yeah i uh i like that again mike this is mike feeling guilty right this is mike feeling guilty about how that guy ended up in the desert because of his actions or inactions and so he's trying to to just make right on that uh, by digging the body up and alerting the authorities to its presence I don't think that's something that's going to blow back on Mike, but I do think that Mike's humanity in this regard is the the sort of thing that can be problematic for him, that he's too nice, that he's too good, that he isn't willing to stick his neck out, that he has too much of a worry about innocent bystanders. And I do feel like that's the thing with Nacho, where, where he looks at Nacho saying, this horrible guy who threatened my family was also threatening his family, Nacho's family. And that's why Nacho felt like he had to do what he had to do there. But for the grace of God, go I. I was certainly ready to kill this guy because he was threatening my family and he wasn't even doing it anymore. So, of course, Nacho should be willing to do it. And so if something happens to Nacho, this is a Mike who's digging dead bodies out of the desert. What's his reaction going to be? If something happens to Nacho. So that's, I just, I, I keep wondering, like, where scenes like this, the merit, and the merit, I guess, is recentering ourselves on Mike's humanity and then asking ourselves, like, is this similar to anything else that's going on that's going to cause Mike to do something that he wouldn't normally do that ultimately puts him back in the position he's in? So I think that's part but of it as why? well. Why? Why is Mike looking for th- this guy? Again, I think it's just that he's got this like guilt uh, because this is the guy who died because Mike robbed Salamanca to begin with. Mike set up the truck accident, robbed the truck, left the driver alive. A good Samaritan drove up. When the good Samaritan drove up, they helped the driver get untied. The driver called, not the police, but he called uh, He called Don Hector. When they showed up, there was a witness to this truck robbery, and there was a witness to the fact that the police weren't called. That witness had to die, and Mike feels responsible for that. Uh, when we saw him talk to Gus, Gus was like, there's nothing you could have done. Like that was blowback. It was cost of business. Like he did that thing. You couldn't have, have, have saved it. And that's Gus telling Mike, like you have to be a little harder against this sort of thing. And here's Mike literally digging up skeletons, mm-hmm. like literally digging up the past and can't let that go. And I think that is part and parcel to the story of that he heard last week from Anita where he heard the story about how her husband disappeared and she had no idea where he went. And she's sitting there in a support group eight years later, still uh, crying over his yeah, clothes. That's why I had to go do it. Got a story from my <laughs> new love interest. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like that is uh, that's a big part of it. So I, I think that this is a Mike who has this humanity. That's a good Mike, pickup. You got this humanity in you. Yeah, it's causing a problem yeah. for him. Well, it's just it's just Mike. Like this is it Mike only gets back involved with Walter White in Breaking Bad because he needs money for his granddaughter. He doesn't need money for uh, anything like to take take to care of himself. The feds take his money, and when the feds take his money, then he feels like he needs to make more money for Kaylee. And it is getting back involved with Walter that ultimately leads to his demise. So it's 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 a, this is the story of Mike that his humanity and his desire to 
ultimately make up for his son's death and what he feels his role in that was, I think has caused him to stick his neck out in ways that he normally wouldn't. We saw that last episode where after hearing that story from Anita, he went out and called Price and said, you know that job I turned down? I'll take it, you know? And it wasn't because he needed more money. He's got more money than he can even launder mm-hmm. at this point. It's because he is a human on some level. And Gus, God love him, because we get this scene with he and Gus, right? And it's fantastic because Gus recognizes this about Mike, I think. I think in knowing that Mike is a guy who hasn't pulled the trigger and killed people and that wouldn't do that with Hector, even though he was willing to and why he was willing to, Gus recognizes this humanity about Mike. And when Mike says, like, listen, I'll, uh, I'll give you this money. You do what you can. You know, Gus says, I would never take from your family. Like, Gus knows exactly what to say to get Mike to wordlessly shake his hand and seal a deal with him. And I think Gus has a much more nefarious goal here. Gus wants Mike. He doesn't give, he doesn't care about 20%, 30%. Doesn't matter. He, that's not what he needs. He needs Mike. And so he knows the way to get to Mike is through that humane element and treating him like a human. And Gus is just so brilliant and so manipulative. It's fascinating to see that. And so officially now Mike is working for Gus. Yeah, we don't know uh, exactly what form this is going to take. Gus has suggested it might be a little more difficult. Uh, Gus points out the very real reasons why Mike and Gus cannot be associated, even on paper, uh, because Mike had some incidents with the Salamancas. Gus is in opposition to the Salamancas. So it's going to look like, uh, or he's not supposed to be, but he is. And so it's going to look bad. And it's going to look like maybe Gus was responsible for setting Tuco up. We can't have any of that. But maybe there's another way, and maybe that other way is Mike starting to work for Gus off paper uh, and in a way that's not going to be public and in a way that Mike didn't want to do that Gus found his way back into. So I think it's all uh, Mike ending up back at Gus's doorstep is probably not a a doorstep he should have stood back on because we know where it's ultimately going to lead him. And uh, it's too bad. He's only doing it because of Kaylee. That's the real reason why. Antonio, anything else from this week's show? No, I had a great time talking to you. Actually, there is one thing. We had some discussion throughout uh, the the course of this podcast about the timeline, people not being sure about the timeline. Breaking Bad starts in 2008, ends in 2011. So where does Better Call Saul take place? We had said 2002, maybe 2001, 2003. Uh, Shout out to Matt Coleman, who was watching and took a screenshot of the check. uh, And the check that Kim gives Howard is dated March 2003. So we know right now we are still a full five years out and it's 2003 so we are not uh, if we're getting into the breaking bad timeline at all we are five years before the start of breaking bad right now march of 2013 uh maybe five and a half or a little bit more but we are that's where we are all right um good find by uh both uh you and matt so uh good job there antonio uh what's the hashtag this week uh i don't have a good suggestion do you have a good suggestion let's see uh marco pollo Marco Pollo or, or Chuck Poppins. <laughs> I'm just picture. I picture him more in the Dick yeah. Van Dyke role, where his face is smudged up with like coal ash from burning some kind of mm-hmm. lantern oil fire, <laughs> and he needs a chimney sweep. <laughs> you know, like he's like that. that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of mileage. Okay, in let's Chuck do Chuck Poppins. Poppins. Then, so. I feel like that maybe uh, okay. Marco Pollo. Uh, we uh, may, may have done in season one. Who knows. We may have. We may have. Marco Poyos Hermanos. Yeah, let's go with Chuck right, Poppins. Chuck Poppins. Uh, there we go. And then just two weeks left here, Antonio. This has uh, gone by very quickly. 
Yeah, I'm so sad. Two weeks until uh, Chuck McGill dies and Jimmy and Kim break up and uh, he becomes Saul Goodman for good and we get to well, 2008. That's the series finale, I of- thought. Yeah, well, <laughs> you just never know. Uh, they, they Their only tease was like, it certainly would be a, a, a provocative series finale if this is the series <laughs> finale. So who knows yeah. what that means about the, the, the end note of this season. Yeah, but it's, it's going to be like a uh, Parks and Recreation type uh, finale where it's like, well, we don't know if we got to pick up. So I guess we have to make something that could also exist as a, uh, you know, if this is our last episode. Yeah, and I just, if we plant one flag, are we on the same page that, that we're going to see more Gene before the end of this season? Oh, Is that no, I happen? don't think we see more Gene. Do you? Okay, I do think we will see another Gene scene. Gene in scene in the finale. Okay, so uh, we have not yeah, done that it, in the season one or season two finale, correct? We have not. Uh, I think it would be very interesting scene to end on, end the season on a Gene scene, to make you feel like really anything could be in play for season four. We could do timelines of 2003. We could go timelines of 2011. I think it would be great to end this season on a Gene scene to ensure that that could happen. Even in a worst case scenario where uh, they didn't get a full pickup, I think at the very least we would get uh, something in between like a Boardwalk Empire and review version of like, okay, it's a six episode final season coming back or something like that. Yeah, I I really feel like it's way more likely that part of the reason for the delay is because they're trying to nail down the end date, that they're probably trying to do a multi-season renewal and say two more seasons and season five will be the last. Like, I feel that's way more likely than, oh, we're not sure if we're going to renew it or not. So I I, I haven't, no one from the show has been out there singing for their supper the way they would be if they felt like it was on the line. All right, Antonio, uh, great work. Looking forward to getting back together with you to talk about the Leftovers finale uh, coming up later on this week. So you can follow Antonio on Twitter. He is at AC Mizarro. That's with two Z's, one R. I'm at Rob Sistrino. Antonio, anything else? No, that's it, Rob. Looking forward to the leftovers, like you said. And uh, I'm glad to be back with my Saul Bay. I didn't like the week <laughs> yes. off. Yeah, uh, it, no, it was no fun. Uh, the only thing that was good about it was I got to uh, do a bit of a dive into House of Cards uh, Season 5 with Zach Brooks, also on Post Show Recaps. Uh, check those out on postshowrecaps.com. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.